What's up everyone and welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now where we cover how the environment, our society and corporate governance affects and are affected by our economy. I'm your host Mike DiCibato and this week we discuss gene edited crops and fines for Meta. Thanks as always for joining us. Stay tuned. The global grain trade had a tough year in 2022. Most of the problems were from Russia invading Ukraine. Those two nations, along with the U.S., are among the top five wheat exporters in the world, so there was talk of a grain shortage. Then climate change came into play. There were floods in China, and there was a heat wave in India. China and India are the world's two largest wheat producers, though they aren't huge exporters, but that still made things worse. This meant that there was fear of famine in countries across North Africa, Central Africa, and the Middle East. Now, one of those situations, the war in Ukraine, will hopefully not be a long-term problem. But climate change is certainly one we will continue to contend with, which isn't great for our world's crop yields. Scientists have found that yields could fall by up to 21% for every 1 degree Celsius increase in temperature. And a fall in yields as populations continue to rise is not sustainable. But there may be a solution to these problems in a controversial piece of technology. A piece of tech that certain regional governments once shunned and now may turn toward. Because they are starting to see the host of problems on the horizon for our agriculture industry. A host of problems, by the way, that is better told by my colleague Cole Martin, who covers the agriculture industry for us. The challenge for the industry is really that the population is expanding, and broadly speaking, diets, especially in emerging markets, are still westernizing to an extent. And one consequence of this is that per capita meat consumption at a global level is still rising. So the meat industry is a key driver of grain demand. Higher grain demand could lead to higher grain prices. And what happens when grain prices rise, according to the IPCC? You get a greater risk of deforestation, right? So we're right back at square one. So really the challenge facing the industry is to produce more food while simultaneously using fewer inputs. So that's things like fertilizer, pesticides, uh, even land to, to some degree. And that means that the emphasis for the industry going forward is going to be increasing efficiency and simultaneously productivity. Increasing efficiency and simultaneously productivity, as well as keeping price at a stable rate because as Cole noted if a commodity's price gets artificially high then more people will want to cultivate it and more forests could be cut down to do just that you often see this in palm oil by the way so how can you set up a system that is efficient productive and stable that can support billions of people well in agriculture there are roughly two schools of thought on how to do just that there are those that think more sustainable growing practices will save us, such as more polyculture systems rather than monoculture systems where one plant is grown over and over and over again in the same land without replacement. And there are those that say even with more sustainable growing practices, we need to use technology to deal with higher rates of drought or heat or disease that our world is seeing due to climate change. An author named Charles Mann coined this battle between what he called the prophets, those that thought we should make our current growing practices more sustainable, and the wizards, those that thought technology was the only way to save us and feed billions of people on Earth. Now, I think the solution to our problems are likely going to be a combination of ideas from the prophets and the wizards. I used to think personally that it would just be the prophets. 
science if you want to know the truth. But these problems due to climate change have kind of pushed me a little bit towards some of the wizard ideas. And one of these interesting ideas that the wizards have had is using gene-edited plants. And that's what Cole thinks is a piece of tech that's going to get broader adoption in the future to fix the problems of drought and heat. Now, usually gene-edited plants are called GMOs or genetically modified crops. But new techniques for developing GMOs are being used in the industry which is a small industry made up of very large players. It's a very concentrated industry with really only three or four companies. So some of the main ones include Syngenta, uh, which is owned by ChemChina, Monsanto previously, which is now uh, owned by Bayer. And there's also Corteva, which was a spinoff of the Dow Chemical uh, DuPont merger. So those three companies in particular, to the extent that there is major innovation in the genetically modified in the, in the GMO space, those companies are, are going to be the ones that are at the forefront of that. Okay, so that is Corteva, Bayer, and Syngenta. Of those companies, two are publicly traded, Corteva and Bayer. You probably know Bayer, the massive German-based life sciences company that got into the agriculture industry game by acquiring Monsanto, the controversial U.S. agrochemical company. But you may not know Corteva, which is a U.S. player that focuses almost entirely on the agriculture industry. We give it an ESG rating of around a triple B because it performs under the industry average on both chemical safety and toxic emissions and waste. But what's really interesting about Corteva is that it has the most low carbon patents that can be used in the agriculture sector of any company that we cover. And if you look at some of its recent patents, such as its European patent for an optimal maize plant, you start to see a pattern appearing where GMOs no longer rely upon the random insertion of what are called transgenes within the genome of a plant. Instead, companies like Corteva are starting to rely on the targeted genome modification of plants with methods like clustered, regularly, interspaced, short, palindromic repeats, which is quite a mouthful, which is why most people just call it CRISPR for short, which is subverting the traditional GMO crops that have been commonly used in agriculture. So up till now, the innovations are mainly along two axes. One is herbicide tolerant crops, and the second is insect resistant crops. And almost all up till now, genetic modifications revolve around these two revolve around these two axes. However, there is because of uh, CRISPR and other gene editing innovations, there could be potentially far more different types of innovations that we've seen previously. So we could see things like drought resistant crops, we could see new genetically genetic modifications to to animals, uh, to things like cattle uh, or even fish. And so the types of innovations that we could see, uh, given the new gene editing techniques, could be uh, much higher. There could be much, many more of them than we've seen up till now. And to the extent that those get commercialized, uh, that can include things like drought-resistant seeds as well, potentially seeds that, re that are more efficient in terms of nitrogen uptake. Uh, those could go some ways to solving some of the climate change challenges that we're seeing now. One of the main obstacles of GMO uptake has both been consumer and regulatory pushback because GMOs come with a lot of risk.
risks. They have been associated with elevated pesticide and herbicide use since the seeds can be made to be resistant to certain chemicals. And then if a farmer uses those seeds, they usually just spray their crops with a lot of pesticides or herbicides that can affect other farms that aren't using those seeds or it affects the long-term soil health of their farms or the insects that may uh, they may rely on for pollination or many other farmers may rely on for pollination or it may affect the surrounding environment. The list goes on. There is also concern around market concentration. As Cole noted, there aren't many companies that make these GMO crops. And if they become the norm, there could be community impacts as farmers have to adhere to the rules set by these multinational companies. But CRISPR may change the game because more people are starting to see its benefits and changing their stance. I'll give you an example in Europe. On September 29th, 2021, the UK government published plans to ease research and testing requirements for gene-edited crops in England, diverging from the EU regulation. And Cole thinks in 2023, the EU may be in line to ease restrictions as well, as could China. And not just because of regulators starting to see the need for gene-edited crops in a warming world. Consumers in areas that used to be sonsly opposed to gene-edited crops are starting to come around. The EU is certainly uh, one place where a lot of previous resistance to GMO crops may be breaking down somewhat. I mean, we know, for example, from consumer surveys that the consumer resistance to GMO crops uh, has fallen a little bit compared to other issues, for example, things like pesticide residue or plastic residue uh, in food products. And so some of the consumer resistance towards GMOs, it appears, may be waning a little bit. And it does sound like at the highest levels of the EU, there, are, there is at least some acknowledgement that the solution to the climate change issues that are being faced from the perspective of the food industry uh, will require a rethink as far as seed technology goes. China is another interesting case. It isn't necessarily consumer opposition uh, that has been the main reason why they haven't planted it, but for, for a different set of reasons, mainly to do with the country's uh, deteriorating food trade balance, the Chinese government has also looked at potentially streamlining the regulatory framework around ge genetically modified seeds and it may be the case that they look towards commercializing them in the near future as well. Of course in the EU just because the governing body says it's okay doesn't mean that its member states are just going to adopt the regulation. It also doesn't mean that farmers will just go out and buy gene edited seeds and start planting. And with agriculture, it's quite important to get the farmers on board with whatever you are planning or well-intended policies can cause havoc. Take Sri Lanka. In the spring of 2021, President Rajapaska made an unusual decision. He banned chemical fertilizers and pesticide imports practically overnight, forcing Sri Lanka's millions of farmers to go organic. It sounded like a great idea. But the implementation of it proved disastrous, it had to be reverted, and the country lost millions. But still, with GMOs, with gene-edited crops, the fact that these regions that were once against them are starting to soften their stance is an interesting topic to follow. And let's do a hypothetical right now. Let's say that the floodgates do open. Who would financially benefit from such an adoption? Just seed companies or would other companies as well? I mean, to the extent that these are commercialized and and the growth in terms of planting starts to increase, the seed industry will be the, I guess, immediate beneficiary. 
And because this industry is relatively concentrated, those companies have uh, a considerable degree of pricing power. There's very high barriers to entry. And so potentially we could see sales growth for these companies increasing to the extent that they're able to price these new seeds uh, at a premium compared to to previous seeds, especially if the governments uh, in various countries encourage their use. To the extent that it contributes to profitability, it's hard to say. There's lots of factors that that go into it. These are relatively high-margin businesses. However, there's going to be lots of research and development costs that go into them. You you have to go for multiple field trials and whatnot. And it isn't a guarantee, for example, that a seed in terms of an idea uh, goes from something that's written down on paper to all of a sudden you know, commercialized and, and planted in a field. What it could mean, though, is for companies that are downstream, you know, if they have a, a, more, uh, a, less, a less volatile grain market because grain prices are not moving as dramatically as otherwise would given what temperature and precipitation patterns are doing, then it may be useful for them as well because they ultimately may have to spend – less money on, on, on hedging programs, for example, or they simply have a higher, you know, a, a more stable supply of, of crops, uh, and therefore that will keep their overall input costs down. And this is important for them because they can only pass on costs so much, right? Because especially depending on where they are within the, the food supply chain, if their input costs are going up, they can pass on some of those costs to consumers, but ultimately it gets to a point where it becomes a political issue for them. So they are somewhat constrained in terms of what they're able to, to pass on to consumers. So for them, to the extent that they want to protect their margins, having stable input costs is a very important component of that. Regardless of the whether or not this gets wide adoption, gene-edited crops will likely remain a complicated topic that will continue to be divisive. There are ethical questions that need to be answered that have not, and there are risks and rewards of gene-edited crops and CRISPR in general that we don't yet understand. Still, when it comes to needing stable crops that can weather the vicissitudes of climate change, where there are droughts followed by downpours, gene-edited crops may be the answer that governments turn toward as the world continues to warm. The company formerly known as Facebook suffered a major defeat in the EU on Wednesday of this week as regulators found it had illegally forced users to effectively accept personalized ads. In legal jargon, it meant that Meta couldn't use its contracts anymore with Facebook and Instagram to justify sending users ads based on their online activity. Meta was fined over 400 million U.S., the second largest fine ever doled out by EU regulators for a company failing to adhere to its landmark data privacy law called the General Data Protection Regulation, or the GDPR. If the ruling is upheld, it would be a major blow to online advertising business in the region, but Meta is appealing the ruling. But they have an uphill battle because according to my colleague Yoon Young Chung, who covers Meta for us, Meta doesn't let users decide how the company uses its data, which is an important requirement in GDPR, if I'm not mistaken. So we found that Meta doesn't provide users with an option for opting out of the advertisement based on online activities on its own platforms. But we see that the best industry practice is to provide users with an option to opt out their personal data for secondary purposes. In fact, only two companies, 
in the interactive media services industry, which Meta is a part of, do not rent, sell, or provide personal data for purposes other than when you're completing a transaction or service that you require that data for. And that is, you'll never guess it, InfoEdge, an auto trader company. Go look those companies up if you're not sure of who they are. The rest either provide no information like Meta or allow users to either opt out or opt into providing personal data to third parties. Alphabet, Google's parent company, for example, is in the opt-in category. Another key takeaway from this ruling that you young mentioned was that, unfortunately for Meta, GDPR isn't the only strict EU regulation that the company is going to have to deal with. EU is tightening regulations of the big tech companies, and they're going to introduce two new laws in 2023 and 2024. So one law is about limiting potentially on anti-competitive conduct from the tech companies. And another is about that requires tech companies to show they have robust content moderation systems. So that all means Meta and other online advertising companies, which is what these social media companies essentially are when you look at the revenue, they're going to have to deal with a lot of trouble in the EU in the coming year. And that's it for the week. I wanted to thank Cole and you young for talking to me with the new, about the news with the ESG twist. I want to thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, don't forget to rate and review us and subscribe if you'd like to hear Bentley and I each week. I hope you had a good New Year's Eve. I hope you had a good beginning of the new year. And I'll talk to you next week. The MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc. subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research, LLC, a registered investment advisor, and the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to, nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or promotional recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.